Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I just hope people know that there's no such thing as a lost cause. And that if you're going through something, just keep fighting and keep believing. And even when it appears that you've hit rock bottom, there's always things to be grateful for. You just have to look up. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Victoria Arlen. At the age of 11, Victoria fell into a coma that would last four years. For the first year and a half, she had absolutely no memories. But one day, in the back of an ambulance, she suddenly awoke inside her body. For the next two years, she was fully awake. Her loving family, including her triplet brothers, refused to give up on Victoria and that one day they would get back the daughter they knew. We talk about the misconceptions of people living in vegetative states and hard questions like, are they actually in there? And the power of a family's love. Victoria, in fact, awoke, lived in a wheelchair, stepped out of that wheelchair, and then traveled the world as a professional swimmer and graced the stage of Dancing with the Stars. Her story is inspiring to say the least, and the love of her family will melt your heart. Here's today's interview with Victoria Arlen. Victoria, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. All right, so I want to start at the beginning. Tell me about the backdrop of your childhood, your family and your early memories of of growing up and, and being a kid. So I grew up in the beautiful state of New Hampshire and I'm one of triplets. So I have two triplet brothers and then I have an older brother. And so we were a family that was always on the move. We were always out moving and playing and playing different sports. And so I had a very, very fun childhood, a very active childhood and and super close with my family. And so everything was pretty normal, if you will, basically up until I was 11 years old. And in particular for you, and then we're going to talk about what happened when you were 11 years Mm -hmm. old, but I'm curious, before 11, did you have a dream or a sense of what you wanted to quote unquote be when you grow up? I feel like I wanted to be a lot of things. I was five when I told my mom I was going to win a gold medal as a swimmer for Team USA. So I, I feel like I always just would throw out these crazy dreams, if you will. And um, I come from a really cool family that no matter the crazy dream I threw at them, they're like, hey, if you work hard, like you're you're more than capable. And so um, I did. I had crazy dreams. I think 
honestly the biggest dream that really drove me and and often would, would keep me up at night even when I was young was how could I help people and I know my my mom and I used to get into uh, debates about it and she's like well you can't help people unless you're re- well rested and so that's how she would get me you know to go to go to bed because I'd be so I'd get so caught up and okay how can we help people and I think as a kid I just I had these big dreams but I didn't I didn't think I had the drive that I do now to achieve those dreams. I love that you got that so early because it's one of my <laughs> favorite questions for myself and for my kids, which is how can you be of service or how can yeah. I be of service? So at the age of 11, what happened? I developed two incredibly rare neurological conditions known as transverse myelitis and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. So basically what that means is... Um, your body starts attacking itself. So it thinks that there's something wrong. And so it can be triggered by a virus or a vaccine. And it basically your body thinks that it's fighting off that, but in actuality, it's it's attacking your central nervous system. And so the transverse myelitis attacked my spinal cord and the encephalomyelitis attacked my brain. And very quickly, I lost every fine motor um, ability I had and went from being normal, healthy kid to uh, completely unresponsive and paralyzed and in a vegetative state within three months. What were the early symptoms? Why did your parents take you to the doctor? What were the, the early things that you were experiencing in your body? The earliest symptoms started actually a year prior to the full-on onset. I started developing just different conditions. I would get pneumonia one week. I would get nonstop ear infections the next. Then I would get the flu and and I was the kid that never got sick. And so my mom was very, it was very perplexing to my parents because out of all the kids, I was the healthiest out of the bunch and the one who brought, you know, organic peas to school as a snack and, and was very conscientious of being healthy from a very, very young age. And then um, in April of 2006, it was flu-like symptoms and the severe pain on my right side, which they initially thought were appendicitis. And so that was kind of what everyone thought was going on. And then after they took out my appendix, that's kind of, everything kind of spiraled pretty quickly after that. As you were losing your ability to speak, eat, walk, movement in your body, mm-hmm. how were you experiencing those losses as they came? I think, you know, I was 11 years old at the time. So I think there was a lot of confusion, but I don't think there was any any fear. I was so young that I, I hadn't really developed the maturity to to understand the severity of what was going on. So I kind of just kept thinking, oh, tomorrow I'm going to feel better. Or tomorrow, you know, I'll, I'll get up and walking. And so I think I was kind of naive to the to the circumstances and the situation. And I, I think it really wasn't until I, I realized I was locked in and no one could hear me that I was kind of like, oh, this isn't good. And I know in your book, you vividly described being trapped in, in seizures. Yeah, I um, pretty early on started developing seizures and it got to a point at its height, they were every two to five minutes around the clock. And so uh, a seizure feels like you're being struck by lightning And so for a year and a half straight, I was pretty much being electrocuted for close to 20 hours a day, which is kind of a form of torture, if you will. And so um, that's actually how I learned how to meditate and how I learned how to kind of put myself elsewhere because the pain was just 
pretty unbearable and I needed, I needed a coping method to, to go with it. And, and no one knew that I was in there. So people didn't realize that I was feeling every single shock going through my body and they, they couldn't get it under control for a whole year and a half. But that was just another example of my body was just in this like fight mode and there was severe inflammation in my spinal cord and in my brain. So it was just like a thunderstorm. So their perception is your physical body is experiencing these seizures, but your mm-hmm. your brain, your soul, your emotional, the perception is she's not feeling this. Yeah. they. I mean, no one really knew, but I think you looked at the scans, you looked at the diagnosis, you looked at the prognosis, and they basically told my parents that I wasn't there anymore, that, you know, the Victoria they once knew was never coming back. And so I think there's a big misconception of people in vegetative states that they're not there and they're not aware. I was very much aware. I just had no way of communicating that. What was your first moment of the realization that you were trapped, or as you often say, locked in your body, but mm-hmm. your mind was still intact. Your mind was very active. The, the mind was not communicating. There was about a year and a half that's kind of lost. And so I remember having this horrible headache, being rushed into an ambulance. And then I woke up in the vegetative state and a year and a half had gone by. So I think that's when I woke up and started remembering. But I didn't realize I was locked in for a good like 15 to 20 minutes. So I kept thinking I was trying to talk to the doctors in the room, the nurses in the room, my parents, and no one was listening. And so that was kind of when I first realized that I was locked in. And what are you experiencing emotionally? What What is happening in your active head? I um, was very confused, but I think I was actually really scared because that moment of me waking up was when doctors were like telling my parents I wasn't going to make it. And if I did make it, I wasn't coming back. So they should put me in a special care facility. And I'm like, no, no. And so I think, uh, I think my emotions there were, were fear. I think I was, I was afraid. And I also just didn't want to be given up on. And, um, fortunately I come from an epic, epic family. And my parents were like, yeah, we're not giving up, you know, we're, she's our daughter and she's still here and we're going to love her and take care of her and and build a life for her despite all of this. So what happened on that day in a year and a half in that put you in the back of the ambulance? Because I know which we'll talk about, you were at home. What happened that day that you remember coming awake inside, if you will? Honestly, I think I had been in the hospital for, for quite some time at that point and they were doing all kinds of things to try to help and try to stop the process. So we actually really don't know that there were this normal course of treatment for these conditions are steroids, but they, they kind of missed that treatment window, but they were kind of trying everything at that point. So we honestly don't know why my brain decided to wake up when it did. And were you aware at that time at the passage of time or what did you know to be true in those early days of having an active mind? I didn't know initially, um, but I'm very keen on like paying attention. And uh, I remember my mom and my family like would put on different shows throughout the day. And so remember I would religiously watch um, Good Morning America and the Oprah Winfrey show. And that's how I was able to like pay attention to current events and time that was going on. Those were kind of how I kind of kept in touch with the current events, but also where the time was and what time of year it was too. So I would pay attention to that. I tried to pay attention to 
situations going on around me. I didn't have control of my eyes, so I really couldn't look around for clues. But when like a TV show or something would come on, I would listen very intently to try to kind of break things down and and figure things out. Okay, this is crazy. During that time, those were the years that I worked first at Good Morning America and then the Oprah Winfrey show. Stop it. So I think that... Oh my gosh. Any producer who was at that time could not have fathomed or Mm -hmm. wrapped their head around that they were keeping you company in a a vegetative state. keeping me sane, yeah. I'm going to share that. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) that's that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So you're trapped in your body. Your mind is, is active and alert. Yes. What are the conversations you're hearing around you? The main conversation, I think that, you know, the doctors kept preparing my parents that I was going to die and that they should be prepared to, you know, say goodbye, prepared to kind of accept this very real possibility. But then on the contrary, they were also every day I like kept living. They would keep saying, well, the Victoria you once knew is, is not coming back. So you need to also think about maybe putting her in a special care facility. And so there was always like one or the other. And then, you know, to rebuttal all of that, my both my parents were like, no, like we, we have her. She's still here. And so they just kept finding ways. So when I would stabilize, they actually set up a hospital room in our living room. So I could be a part of our world and be a part of my family and, and still have the proper care and, and being taken care of. And so my parents were, and my brothers alike, everyone was like, as long as we still have her, she's still part of our family. And so they basically built a world around me and, and brought me home and, and took care of me. And, and they didn't know I was aware. And as we've kind of talked about it, because I, I asked my mom, I was like, well, why, why did you do that? How did you do that? And she goes, honestly the boys, your dad, like all of us agreed that the thought of you not being there was more devastating than anything. And so we just kept, this is Victoria and this is what Victoria would want. And this is what she'd want to wear today. And this is what, you know, she would love to have her toenails painted and she would love to watch the show. And she seems to really enjoy that. So they just, they tried to figure it out and they tried to give, they, they honestly gave me the best quality life possible and, and took such great care of me. And, and so that was really what kept me going because I think it's very easy to lose your mind, literally. And so, but I just saw the the love of my family. I saw them keeping me in tune with everything and keeping me feeling like a part of the family. And that really inspired me and motivated me. So they surrounded you with love and hope, it sounds like, um, yeah. or at least their internal hope. Yeah, and they, but they would tell me too, like my brother's like, My one brother, Cam, my one triple brother, Cam, will come in and say, doesn't she look so beautiful today? Aren't you just so beautiful today? And then my other brother would come in and and they just like, they really just never gave in to the possibility that I wasn't there. They were like, no, Victoria is here and we're going to love her regardless. Mind you, I was far from beautiful at that time. I was hooked up to a lot of different machines. I was in a hospital bed. I was completely limp, so I had no no control of anything. Um, so I did look like I was severely compromised and, and very weak, but yet my hair was still done every day. My nails were done. And, and despite, you know, obviously being very, very ill, I was taken very well care of. Got it. And the level of frustration, I almost 
I don't know if you're experiencing conflict or, you know, your brother and your mom are bickering and you want to take his side. I mean, how did you learn to cope with that, to not have a voice? It was hard. I don't think I ever fully accepted it. I think in my mind, I would just pretend that I had a voice. I think the only time it was the most frustrating was when doctors were saying the things that they were saying to my family. And when doctors were were kind of telling them to give up. And I remember it was just my mom and I and this doctor came walking in. He didn't even sit down. He just said to my mom, he's like, you need to accept the fact that your child is going to die and just walked out. And in such a heartless, like 10 second conversation, shared that and walked away. And I remember seeing out of the corner of my eye, my mom just like falling to her knees and crying. Like just the one of the cries that like you can just never forget. And so uh, I remember in that moment, I just wanted to scream. I remember I wanted to reach out and I remember being like, oh my God, if like I could only just say one thing, it would say, I love you, mom. Like I'm, I'm still here. I'm still fighting. And I remember just that being permanently ingrained in my mind and I never wanted to see that again. And so I was like, I'm, I'll be damned if this is how my story ends. And so I think it was a moment like that that really made me frustrated that I couldn't say anything. And then there was another moment where I was laying in bed and my nose really itched. I really had an itchy nose. And you know when you think about it, it like gets worse. Yeah. And so I remember laying there and yes, there's seizures. Yes, there's all these other issues going on, but I needed to scratch my nose so badly. And I remember laying there just thinking, if one day I get to scratch my nose, I will be forever grateful. Like that will be the greatest accomplishment. And so um, now when I, I do a lot of speaking and I once made at an event a couple months ago, 20,000 people scratch their nose as like a perspective where if you're ever just having a moment and you're spinning out, just scratch your nose and realize how cool it is that you have that ability. I'm scratching my nose right now. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what do you do to fill the space and time. You talked about watching, you know, television shows, mm -hmm. but that's a lot of time. What What are the yeah. things that you use to cope? Um, my faith was a huge part of that. So I think obviously like, you know, saying my prayers and stuff. And I think another thing too, is I just, I started to to kind of create a hefty bucket list. And I decided that when I came out of this, I would I would not have fear when it comes to going after these crazy dreams. And then I also just decided to think about the things I had to be grateful for. And every day I made a conscious decision to start my day off with that and look around me and, and look within and, and say, wow, like, you know, I've got a family that loves me. I have, we have machines that are keeping me alive. And and I have the ability to think about the things that I'm grateful for. And so I think doing things like that really helped. And then I set like routines. Like I knew in the morning was when I would watch Good Morning America. And so I would get caught up on all the days. That was when Diane Sawyer and Robin Roberts were there. And I would just, I would just like get caught up on that and be like, okay, thank you. And then, and then, you know, kind of keep my days going. And then I think Oprah came on at four. So I was like, yep, okay, now it's time for this. And sometimes my dad would throw me a curveball and put the food network on. So I learned how to cook. Like I absorbed everything around me. And I think I'm such a, a lover of learning. And so I just decided I'm just going to absorb the world around me so that when I do come out of this, I won't skip a beat and we'll be able to kind of just get right to it. That's so interesting. They created routine and structure, which we all need. Yep. And 
What was the ratio of hospitalization, living hospital life versus being at home with with your family and kind of juxtapose those experiences for us? I think it depended on the time and depended on how severe things were. On average, if we were checking into a hospital, we'd be there for three or four months at a time. And then at home would have, you know, 24-hour nursing care and, and everything. So it kind of depended for four years. It went back and forth. Honestly, I loved being home. I think being home, I got to see my brothers come home from school. I got to kind of be, it felt as, as abnormal as the situation was. It was the most normal it could possibly feel. And I just felt safe there. That makes all the sense in the world to me. And being at home, your brothers, you know, the connection (laughs) of being a triplet and your two brothers, Mm -hmm. you share some sweet stories of them during this time and their interactions with you. And I think one is crawling in bed. Will you share with me some of those moments (laughs) of how your brothers connected with you? Yeah, I think um, they found ways to communicate with me. They found ways to figure out what I liked, what I disliked. Um, I used to do this thing when I was little. I'd always tuck my socks into my PJ pants whenever I went to bed. And my brother, Will, always insisted as my mom was putting me to bed to tuck my socks in. And so I think my brothers just tried to keep that normal routine. So they were very aware of that. And my older brother as well, they were all just very aware but also like so excited that I was home. You know, I think whenever I left to go to the hospital, they didn't know if I was coming home. And so whenever I was home, that gave them a sense of kind of, they could breathe a little easier, but yeah, they would, even in the hospital, like the doctors would be like, okay, you need to be careful. And I'd be hooked up to all these things and they would manage to climb under all the the wires and the tubes just to like get to my eye level, wherever my eyes were fixed on and, and like talk to me or read me a story or tell me about their day. And and so that was really cool to see because I think a lot of times and, and I, I've heard a lot of stories of how siblings will act out when their sibling is really sick. And, and my brothers were the opposite of that. And I think also it helps being a triplet too. There's, there's a connection there. And, and growing up, I was always kind of their protector. And so when I needed them, they were they were right there for me. Where do you think you would have been emotionally without this deeply loving, deeply engaged, present family? I don't think I would be here, to be honest with you. I think I would have given up a lot sooner. I had something to fight for. I had a family that, that loved me and, and a family that I wanted to say thank you to. And I love, you know, I love them right back to them. Your bucket list. Part of it was thanking your family. What are some of the other things that were on that bucket list that you were dreaming about? Ooh, um, I think winning a gold medal was on there. I think being able to help people in some way, I think now more than ever, I wanted to. Being on television, oddly enough, being able to kind of pursue that dream as as a television host and uh, even dancing with the stars, as silly as that sounds. And I think a lot of the, I mean, those are bigger items on the bucket list, but a lot of it also is just being able to like laugh with my family, being able to kind of have another chance to at life, give it one more go around. And and so I think just being free from this hospital bed was a, was a big one for me. I want to talk about your first words and, mm-hmm. you know, your brain connecting and, and your voice being reactivated into the world and share with us that moment in that day. 
So it actually started with blinking that I regained the ability to control my eyes. And that's how I was able to first start communicating with my family. And then slowly but surely, I had severe muscle atrophy. So slowly but surely was able to kind of start putting words together. Unfortunately, I did deal with a lot of abuse from nurses and doctors when I was in my vegetative state. So kind of my first words to my family were they hurt me which I hadn't been able to vocalize for for a very long time. And it was whenever my parents weren't there that bad things would happen. And so I think that was a, obviously it's not the best first words you want to say after all this time. But I think after that, I just said, I was like, thank you for not giving up on me. And thank you for believing me and believing in me. And so I think a lot of it was all of those things. And then I love to talk. So I think I just kept talking after that. I think, you know, first of all, I'm so sorry that you went through that abuse. And when I read that, it made me think about elderly care because mm-hmm. it's, I think it's so frequent there. Yeah. The victimization of people who are, are helpless to defend themselves. Yeah. But your first words were advocating for yourself. What was your family's reaction that first moment they realized they could communicate with you using your eyes? Oh, they were so relieved and so excited. I think they were like, we all, we knew you were in there. And I think that just affirmed it. They just, they were so excited. I, I think that I don't even know if excitement's the right word, but I think they were also a bit relieved that yes, they, they weren't crazy that, that, that she's still here. And then they're like, okay, now how can we help her communicate with us? Then they went into, they went into celebratory mode, then proactive mode. And how were you experiencing that? connection with them. I was so excited. I was so relieved because I think for so long, I just wanted to be heard. I wanted to, to let them know that I was still in there and that I was still fighting. And so the fact that now we both knew was really relieving for me. How long when that happened, had you been in a vegetative state? Almost four years. Yeah. I've heard you say your entire life came back with one blink, which is so beautiful. All right, so you are slowly re-entering the world and your your body's abilities are, are coming back to life, if you will. Imagine, obviously, learning to speak and eat and move again. What is this process and how long does that take, if you will? I mean, the process itself was pretty grueling. I'd say it, it took about three or four months before I was kind of, you know, navigating a wheelchair on my own and, and finding kind of a new sense of, of independence. But it was it was around the clock, you know, physical, occupational, speech therapy. And then this was about like February of 2010. And then by that summer, I was, I was learning how to maneuver a wheelchair and, and get around independently because I wanted to get back to school in the fall. So just constant therapists working on every aspect. Yeah. Yeah. To bring everything back to life. And you wake up, you are four years older. Yes. I'm 15. This happened when you're 11, you quote unquote, wake up to the world. Mm -hmm. How did you experience that? I think it helped having triplet brothers who kind of helped me get back into the world. and, And I just kind of had to find a new normal you know, because as much as I'd grown up overnight, you know, I also had been light years ahead as far as maturity because you can't go through something like I went through and, and not come out. 
like at least 20 years older in your mind. And so I think it was kind of a, a middle ground where as much as I hadn't been in school since I was 11, I also, you know, had developed a maturity and also a bigger understanding of, of life itself. So it was kind of in this weird limbo. And it's interesting with your brothers that you did kind of experience that passage of time through them? Well, yeah. So I did kind of absorb it around. So I did I I didn't miss too much of a beat. And what about the societal shift, kind of the juxtaposition of the world you left in a sense versus the world you now re-enter, leaving, you know, your home and re-engaging as a teenage girl living in a wheelchair? I mean, I think kind of going back to what we spoke about, I still watch things going around. So not like I, I blacked out for four years. So I knew what was going around. I just wasn't out there, you know, so but I did kind of have an idea. But I, I also think navigating the world in a wheelchair was was completely foreign to me. So everything else kind of put, took a backseat to and I just kind of adapt accordingly and, and figured it out and had to find, okay, this this is my new normal. So how do I, you know, make the most of it and, and figure figure it out? So it really was kind of just a mixture. Every day was different and presented new challenges and I just kept adapting to them. Yeah, I read somewhere just kind of engaging in pop culture. Like there was no Facebook when this happened. <laughs> All of a sudden- Yeah, there was no Facebook and cell phones weren't a big thing. And um, my iPod shuffle was cool in 2006. And now there's like iPod touches and- um, yeah, boys didn't have cooties anymore. Justin Bieber was a big thing. Like it was, there were so many things that I'd like was watching. And then, and then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, skinny jeans are in and okay, this is in. And I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> How you do it in the trajectory of your story, just in asking these questions is incredible to me. So you've missed all of middle school mm-hmm. and you decide you are going back and starting high school. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that decision and people's reaction to it. So I wanted to graduate on time with my brother. So I knew I needed to make up five years and three years. And when I first went back to school, we had just moved. So I was the new kid in a wheelchair and the school had put me in classes where kids were coloring. And I was so, I was so angry and I, I came home and I was like, mom, we need to get a meeting with the guidance counselor. And I went in and and they were so against it, so against it, because they wanted to ease me back into it. And I'm like, I didn't fight to get out of a vegetative state to be put into a class with a coloring book. I said, I, I got here and I plan to go to college in three years' time. And so I, uh, I can be a little feisty because it's one thing I don't like to be told I can't do something or have someone else try to write the narrative of my story. And so I said, give me a semester. I will double up my course load. And if I don't, if I get below a B you can have control of my school trajectory. I said, but give me one semester. And they reluctantly agreed. And I got honors within my first semester and then kept doing so and then made the honor society and and then managed to graduate on three years with my brothers. Well, all of the the reading to you, the, you know, the shows, the hearing the conversations. I mean, you were absorbing all of that. Mm-hmm. So exactly. that, that's where the, the education, come. I'm sure you even heard your brothers doing their homework. And mm-hmm. well, I was a sponge in the, in that time, I was such a sponge. And I, I just, I paid attention to everything. I would count things. I would just, I would constantly get my brain going 
um, because I knew at any given moment that could be taken away from me. I want to talk about your relationship to water. Mm-hmm. Share the story about your brothers and the first time that <laughs> you were back in the water and, and what water meant to you at that time. So I had grown up around pools and lakes and, and was planning on being, you know, a, a gold medal winning swimmer. And so I loved the water. It was a huge part of my life. And then when I came back in the summer of 2010, I was terrified of it. I stayed away from it. I, I didn't, I wanted nothing to do with it. And I think a part of it was obviously I was paralyzed from the waist down. So the thought of swimming is was a little scary without your legs. But I think also I was dealing with a lot of loss. I was dealing with the loss of time, the loss of half of my body. I, I was just dealing with a lot of loss that I couldn't bear to deal with losing something that I loved so very much, which was swimming. And so I, I almost I almost stayed away from it because it, it was going to be, I knew it was going to be a painful reemergence of a reminder of what else was taken away from me. So there was a lot of those fears, but my brothers are pretty persistent and um, they really believed that this would be a good thing for me. And so they kind of had a little sting operation behind my back and came in and strapped on a life jacket and, and threw me in there. And they held on to me and, and I think they would do that every single day and little by little, you know, the life, I would only need one brother holding me. And then the life jacket would came off. And, and I realized, you know, in the water, I, I didn't need my legs. I didn't need my wheelchair. I didn't need to be hooked up to anything. And so it was a, it was a sense of freedom. It was a freedom that I hadn't experienced in a very long time. And, and I realized, wait, my love of swimming is, is still here. But I think that's a metaphor for life and, and for anything is sometimes you just have to jump in, even if it's scary. And, and sometimes you have to kind of help, you know, help someone jump in. And so that's really what my brothers did. And nearly two years, almost to the day, um, we were in London and I was winning a gold medal. How long were you in the wheelchair? I was in um, my wheelchair for 10 years. And so you've had so many milestones, obviously. But what was the process of learning to walk after spending a decade in a wheelchair? <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. Um, my parents actually opened up a paralysis recovery center called Project Walk Boston. And that was really kind of the turning point for me. And so from there, I would train, you know, six hours a day, every single day. And we were racing against uh, time for sure. And I think there was, every doctor was was telling me like, this is never going to happen. You need to accept the wheelchair and stuff. And while I accepted it to an extent, I also was told I would never talk again and never function again and never be independent and never be a quote, functioning member of society and contributing member of society. So I knew there was a lot of things that I had done that I was told I wouldn't do. So I was kind of like, well, why not try this? And I, I knew I just needed kind of a blink moment. And we got a flicker in my leg. And that was November of 2015. And then um, kind of fanned the flame from there. And by April of uh, 2016, I was I was up on my feet walking. I'd kind of ditched the crutches, ditched my wheelchair, still had leg braces till about September of uh, 2016. And then that following year was, was dancing on Dancing with the Stars. So it happened pretty quickly, but it's still a bit of a work in progress. There was a shift in your identity. And I know in a sense, you said you were almost scared of that because you 
had identified yourself as a Paralympic athlete and Mm -hmm. someone who was living, you know, yet thriving in a wheelchair. And now outwardly, the rest of the world sees this able-bodied, you know, young person. What was that transition like for you? It was very challenging. I think um, being in the public eye and, you know, at that point, I just started at ESPN. So I tried to separate my identities in a sense. And I actually got a lot of flack for it where people were like, why aren't you sitting in your wheelchair on television? And I was like, well, I'm at the sports center desk or I'm interviewing someone. And so I didn't want that to be the conversation piece. Yes, it was a part of who I was, but it wasn't why I was on television and it wasn't why you know, I was, I was doing my job, but I was very much kind of, you know, associated with that. And I ended up writing um, an essay with a friend of mine and a colleague of mine. And that was kind of all I needed to do. And then um, obviously when, when I did Dancing with the Stars, that was kind of a, my, a whole other way of telling my story. But um, it was interesting. I mean, I was 21 years old when I was going from being in a wheelchair for 10 years to now walking. So that in of itself was pretty crazy. So you've now had the world experience you as a teenager in a vegetative state, mm-hmm. the girl in the wheelchair, if you will. And now you're seen as able-bodied and beautiful costumes, you know, dancing this sort of almost celebrity way. How would you describe how the world treats those three different categories of people? I mean, I think... You know, being in a wheelchair, obviously you get a fair share of comments and initial judgments and people kind of being, they almost are overusing the word inspiration. And then I go from walking and and doing my job to, okay, you're a TV host and people are more so like focusing on your job and then dancing. Wow, you're dancing. So I don't, I don't know if I, if I can provide a good answer to that. Cause I think for me, like my family and my friends always treated me the same. And I didn't really pay too much attention to the outside noise because, you know, for every person that, you know, likes you, there's going to be a couple that don't like you. And, you know, some people were confused, like, well, how did you start walking? And I can't walk and all this stuff. And so I had to find ways to, to almost say like every story is different. Like you can't compare your story to, to my story. And, and then again, trying to also put my story in the past and be like, no, this is me now. I'm a television host. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. Like this is what I'm, I'm doing now versus constantly reliving the past. What was it like on Dancing with the Stars to dance in front of millions of people? It was really cool. It was one of those surreal experiences. And I think it, it definitely put my story on a whole different map, which came with its own set of challenges. But at the same time, you know, working with that and how can I, you know, make a, make a difference with that. And you went on to write a book about your story. Yes. And I've read that that was hard because you had to yes. relive <laughs> everything. What was that process? Tell me about the hard pieces of that process. I didn't process a lot of what happened to me. And then all of a sudden I'm writing this book and I'm reliving, you know, I'm, I'm living my best life, but reliving my worst life. But it was, it was a very surreal experience for me because everyone else had processed it in my family. Everyone else had talked it out. I'd cried it through and I was the only one that hadn't. So that was a, you know, a dam waiting to be burst open and and it sure did and, and kind of flooded 
flooded me for a while and then kind of overcame that and, and managed to write a book and change a few lives along the way. And so you experienced that grief, Mm -hmm. which I'm so glad you did. What were the things that were the most healing to you during that time? I think finding forgiveness was the most healing for me. I think there was a lot of mistakes that were made that cost, nearly cost my life, but cost me a lot of damage. And so um, both physically and emotionally. And so I think learning to forgive was really powerful for me, learning to forgive and learning to find a purpose for all that happened to me and a peace, you know, finding peace and purpose for the pain that I went through. So the cathartic experience of writing the book and crying and grieving and the acts of forgiveness, Mm -hmm. what role did faith play in this journey? A huge role for me. It was, it's been my lifeline. It's been my anchor. It's been something that I don't think I would have gotten through what I went through without it, to be honest with you. It was, it's been my lifeline. And I'm curious because your story is so, you know, unimaginable to people. And we, we share a lot of stories that are unimaginable, mm-hmm. but, I, but I think yours is exceptional in that way. What is the most common question people ask you? The thing that, that they're the most sort of universally curious about? Hmm. I think people just ask, like, how did your family keep going? How did you keep going for all those years? And I think when you have a, a strong, you know, collection of faith, hope, and love, I think you can move mountains. And that's really what kept all of us going. And your drive, where does that come from? Your drive, your optimism. I've, I've read and, you know, that people have said you're driven by this sort of deeper desire to balance the scales of, you know, spending this large portion of your life immobilized. Mm-hmm. But what is the impetus and what is the origin of, of that within you? I think when kind of everything's stripped away and you have, you know, you can't even scratch your own nose, I think you develop this the strong sense of gratitude. And then I think I watched, you know, life go on without me for four years. And so I think I was pretty driven at that point to make the most if I was given a second chance to make the most of it. And so I think that that honestly, that moment of not being able to scratch my nose really has continued to, you know, drive me to move forward and keep doing the impossible. So I think it was a combination of all the above. And and just knowing that, you know, you come close to losing your life more than once that you're not going to just coast through life. You're just going to dive on in and, and go for it. So you are this model, this example of inspiration, of perseverance, of positivity, of coming out the other end of something. You know, you're beautiful and successful in so many ways, but you're also a human being mm-hmm. like everyone <laughs> in the world who, you know, has insecurities and has things that are hard. I like to say it's, you know, sometimes who are you 2 a.m. in the morning with no makeup and all? Because we all have that. So what are those pieces of you? The raw parts, the hard parts of you. I think I'm, I'm someone who likes to constantly go. And I think I have to find a balance with that because it's not healthy to go a million miles an hour all the time. So I think sometimes I'm a I'm needing to take a break. I'm needing to quiet down. And that's very challenging for me to do. And I'm, I'm definitely human. I have, uh, you know, my own fair share of stresses and, and insecurities and anxieties. And so I think it's finding a balance for all of that. And I think 
what's really hard is you don't really get, um, no one gives you a brochure for, for being this miracle. And so you're kind of indirectly given this superhero cape, if you will. And you have to be on and you have to be, people are looking to you. And I, I think for a very long time, I, I didn't allow myself to be anything but that. And, and it, I didn't realize that I was allowed to feel, allowed to cry, allowed to have, you know, a, a meltdown. And, and it wasn't until my mom was like, it's okay to not be okay. And so there there are days where I'm like, it's raining today and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with that accordingly and, and finding that balance. Cause even Superman needed to take off his cape from time to time. I'm curious, do other families who have a loved one in a vegetative state, do they reach out to you or? Yeah, I get, I get a lot of inquiries through my website, through social media and a lot of it too. It, it's challenging because I am one of the few, I'm, I'm the only one that I know of that has come out of this situation. Uh, and, and so I, I try to be as, as encouraging and hopeful as possible, but every story is different. And so I really have to emphasize that constantly that every story is different. So please do not compare yours to mine and what worked for me may not work for you. It might, it might not, but I, I think trying to, to draw that line so that people aren't, don't get disappointed. Cause I know with me, like I would get disappointed by comparing myself to other people too. So it's like finding a balance. And I think for a while I would try to go through everything and stuff. And it was, it was exhausting. It was, it was draining the life out of me. And so I think I had to kind of find that balance. Well, yeah, I would imagine there's almost a sense of burden in being everyone's yeah. hope when you there's don't... like that. Yeah. That's a burden for sure. Sometimes. <laughs> What do you hope that people take away from your story, Victoria? I just hope people know that there's no such thing as a lost cause and that if you're going through something, just keep fighting and keep believing. And even when it appears that you've hit rock bottom, there's always things to be grateful for. You just have to look up. Well, thank you, Victoria. I love connecting with you and I'm really just grateful to you for sharing your story. And I'm so glad you are are here in the world sharing it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and I'm very honored to be here. So thank you. I appreciate that so much. All right. We're going to end with a little thing we do called rapid fire. Okay. So are you ready? I am. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Favorite body of water? Lake Winnipesaukee. Perfect way to spend a Friday night? Mm, with all my friends playing games. Place I would like to see? Uh, Hawaii. Favorite song? Tub Thumping by Jumbawamba. The best piece of advice I've ever received? That it is okay to not always be okay. From your mom. Yeah, from my mom. <laughs> she's my, she's my go-to. <laughs> Victoria, where can our listeners find you and follow you and see what you are up to next? I'm pretty active on Instagram, so you can find me at, at ArlenV1. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Today's interview with Victoria supports Victoria's Victory Foundation. Her goal is to continue to make a difference in the world, not only through sharing her story, like she did today, by giving other people living with severe disabilities and their family the support she received. This is everything from medical devices to training and recovery sessions and ways for these patients to stay at home and be loved by their families. You can learn more about Victoria 
and her important work at victoriasvictory.org. I hope you liked today's episode as much as I did and that you'll tune in to next week when we dive a little bit deeper into this fascinating subject of what it means to be awake inside a coma. As always, thank you for listening and have a great day. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.